0: Well, church, uh, welcome to part two of the series that we're in right now called People Matter. In case you weren't with us last week as we kicked off the series, uh, we, we said that, uh, that the idea behind the whole thing is that Jesus took time away from these miracles. He took time away from teaching, this theology, the ideas about God. He took time away from that to spend time with people, to show us that to God, People matter. You matter. No matter what, is a, a scary thing, a dangerous thing starts to happen when we kind of separate out our beliefs about God. You could t- you could call that theology. No matter what you believe, and ideas that you have about God, those that's called theology. A dangerous thing happens when we start to separate that from the experience of people before God. And you can actually you can kind of start to tease some of this out a little bit by simply asking somebody what their favorite book. Of the Bible is. And maybe they have a, a few ideas in mind already. Uh, you can kind of, I'll start. You can ask me. My favorite book of the Bible is the book, The Gospel of Mark. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. It's that Mark is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's 16 chapters long. You could read it cover to cover, end to end, in about 40 minutes. I like the book of Mark because it's like the simplest of all the books. I mean, it's basically a blog post that's just like, hey, listen, we just want to get this idea out. This is who Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. I mean, it's just it's the simplest language in any book of the Bible. And that should tell you something about my heart. Maybe it should tell you something about this ministry that we're creating here together, that we want it to be accessible. And simple and straightforward and Jesus-centered. So you might you might ask somebody, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And sometimes you might get, hey, uh, my favorite book is Psalms. And you start to know somebody, something about somebody that way because it's like, oh, hey, they're probably kind of artsy, right? Maybe they're a musician. They might have like a like a dark side to them that kind of comes out towards the beginning, or you know. This is Psalms. You might ask somebody, favorite book of the Bible, and they say Ecclesiastes, or maybe Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and you're like, you are in a depression right now, and we are there for you. We're going to get you help. All right. Somebody's going to say, favorite book of the Bible, Song of Songs. Nope, they don't. Nobody ever says Song of Songs. That has <laughs> never once been the response to that one. If you haven't read it, check it out sometime. Read it with your kids. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> You know, my favorite, though, is what you can tell about people. And I picked this up in seminary, which is like pastor training school after college. And you start to ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, right? And they'd say, they'd say Romans. Let me just give you a little reason why Romans is a problematic favorite book of the Bible if you're heading towards ministry. And this is going to give me a little hot water, but that's okay. Save your email. I want to make my case here. All right. The problem with Romans is that it was written almost entirely into a vacuum. The problem with Romans is like it's theology from Paul. I mean, it's all true and it's all good. It's like the instruction manual. But the problem with Romans is that it's written to a church that Paul at the time had never been to yet. So he's just spelling out all of these truths. So by saying like, My favorite book of the Bible is Romans is a lot like saying, hey, my favorite thing about owning a Ferrari is the instruction manual. And you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Like, that's the problem with Romans is that it has a tendency, at least for some people, it's like, man, church would be so cool if it weren't for all the messes of all the people. And some of you are like, yeah, okay, guilty, right? (laughs) Like I kind of get that a little bit. So like Romans, sometimes it has a way, right? problematically of like separating away from people. It's all true, and it's all helpful, and it's all God-inspired, but we don't want to be the kind of church that like separates it out from the people, separates truth out, the theology out, from the people of God, including those messes. And we don't want to do that because Jesus, Jesus saw the messes that we create. He saw the messes that I create, and the divisions, in my life and in yours he saw all of these problems and he didn't separate them out he didn't write theology or beliefs about god into a vacuum jesus jesus ran right into the heart of all of them and some of the most important and some of the most profound truths about god come to us not from a theological vacuum they come to us from the way that jesus interacted with the people in their mess and in the problems That they brought up to him. And so we're going to go to one of those messes, another one of those messes today. In John chapter 2, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. And we're phone friendly, so look it up on the Bible app. But I just want to set up John chapter 2 is what's often called the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Inauguration means it's the beginning, it's the announcement, it's the first thing that happens that shows, listen, this guy is kicking off his earthly ministry. And this is a huge, huge deal because what we know about anytime anybody kicks off something brand new, especially the most important event in human history, is that whenever somebody kicks off something brand new, there's always like this fine-tuning of making sure the details are all exactly right and all exactly on message. So for example, whenever a presidential candidate, a presidential hopeful announces that they're running for president of the United States, and we've seen about a hundred of these, right? Now, haven't we lately? They always do it with this announcement, this is exactly on brand, exactly on message to show the people what kind of candidate that they are, to, to make a statement, not only with what they say, but also all of the details around. Anytime an artist, a musician is going to drop a new album, they make sure that all the details are lined up exactly right and they're very very intentional about making sure the details are on message, on point. Steve Jobs at Apple was amazing for this. Like the the devices or not, it doesn't matter. They used to call his uh, they used to call his product launches the the reality distortion field because like you'd go in, right? And he would be like, this mass this amazing pitch right, and you know heading in. You're like, it's a phone and it's going to be thinner, lighter, and faster than last year's phone. Like, it's the maybe with a better camera, maybe. Like, it's the, you know what the announcement is going to be. But when you step into the zone, it's like captivating and it's like, it's thinner. I did not see that coming. You know? Every detail is lined up exactly right for this big announcement of the new product. And in Jesus' ministry is exactly the same. When, when he makes his announcement of like, I have come as the son of God and I'm kicking off my ministry, the most important event in the history of the universe, he makes sure that every detail is finely tuned exactly correct. Except for it's not how I would have done it. Because you're like, listen, I... It would make sense if he, does, if he kicks off his ministry by, like, raising somebody from the dead. It would make sense if he kicked it off by, like, driving demons or darkness out of somebody. It would make sense, wouldn't it? If Jesus kicked this thing off by giving hearing to the deaf or sight to the blind, like, all of these things would make sense. But he doesn't, he doesn't introduce his ministry like that at all. In fact, he introduces his ministry at a party, <laughs> And I think that you'll agree by the end here that it's like that was the perfect way that the Son of God could show that he was who he says he was. Listen, listen to the story from John chapter 2 and uh, just the first few verses here. And it says that on the third day, listen, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples who had also been invited to the wedding. And I just love that our Messiah was a guy who's like, let's invite Jesus to the wedding. Like, yes, that's good. It's a party. Jesus should be there. He's at parties. He likes parties. Parties matter. Verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And isn't this just like an eternal epic truth that mom comes up, particularly after the kids are in bed, and she's like, there's a problem. There's no more wine. (laughs) she comes up to Jesus and like, we need to do something about this, son. This situation needs to be fixed. A couple things about that that we got to realize, all right? We got to realize that weddings weren't just weddings, and that wine wasn't just wine. Let me explain what I mean by that. Typically today, we, we see weddings, and we go to weddings, and we kind of understand a little bit about like what it's going to be like. And it's I've been to a few of them, I've officiated a few of them, I'm going to officiate five this month, because that's what kind of church demographic encounter is, okay? So like, I, I've been to a few ceremonies and, and planned a few, So, but, and I kind of get that at its, at its base sort of level, and kind of builds up from there, is that what, we, what we're celebrating in that moment is, is usually pretty, and I'm just going to, like for better or for worse, call it what it is, a little wedding humor coming at you there, make sure you got that, Okay, he, eventually. What it is, is like a celebration of happiness between a couple. You know, and as Christians, we tend to aim higher than that. And, and if you're going to get married and I'm going to be involved, I'd love to explain a little bit more on that. But, but that's like the starting point of like, hey, we're kind of on an individualistic level celebrating the happiness of this couple. Okay, that's kind of what it is today. And, and then you start to add on there with like it being like exactly you know, uh, Instagram ready and Pinterest perfect and in a barn and like perfect and all those kind of ways. But it's that like happiness between a couple. Back then though, a wedding wasn't just a wedding. Back then though, it was a community event. Because back then, though, it stretched way, way, way beyond the couple themselves. And as awful as it is to think about it, back then, they didn't really have much of an attention for just the couple, really, at all. In fact, it was all about the community. Because communities were always thinking about their very existence. Communities, the little villages, they were always having in mind just a simple survival from day to day, season to season, year to year. And so a wedding meant a new family. A wedding meant, meant growth of the community. It meant stability. Wedding means adding members. A wedding means a more diverse economy. It means there are more people eventually to defend themselves against people who may come into the village and want to harm them. A, a wedding was a reason for the entire community to celebrate. And so a wedding doesn't last a Friday night or a Saturday A wedding would go on for weeks, the whole village, not just about the couple, like they're not the center of this thing. The the, the wedding would go on for a week or more because it's like we're experiencing this like rejuvenation or this addition to the whole community. And so they would feast and they would laugh and they would party for a week or longer. And wine wasn't just wine. Wine meant something more than that. It wasn't just party juice, right? It wasn't just like another beverage to choose from. Wine meant something deeper and more. I'll say it this way. the, The prophets in the Old Testament, in Amos chapter 9 and Joel chapter 6, in case you want to reference it later, you can read about how the prophets write about the day that That Jesus is going to come back, that God is going to come, and he's going to stand on this redeemed earth. And they describe like what that scene is going to be like when God once and for all brings his kingdom. Essentially, they're talking about heaven. And it's almost universal that the Old Testament prophets, whenever they're talking about that blessed day, they start talking about how wine is going to drip down, drop down from the mountains. That the rivers are going to flow with milk. And they, like, bring up this imagery of, like, and there's just grapes, right? The size of, like, softballs. And it's just, like, this incredible imagery that they draw from almost every time. Wine isn't just wine. See, a lot of the scholars write about this thing, and they say, just on a very practical level, you know, maybe it took on that meaning because, because it was expected, but it's not a staple. See, it's not like bread, uh, bread, you, you plant in the ground, you plant wheat, grain, you put it in the ground. The, at the end of next season, you'll have something to harvest and you can turn it into bread. It's, it's very quick. It's like the ancient equivalent of quick oats or something like that, right? Like, it's the microwave, like we just have it. But wine took longer, especially good wine, because it took a while to grow the vines. It took a while to ferment the grapes. It takes time. And and wine typically isn't the first thing that you would would create when survival is at stake. Wine is associated not just with with making ends meet. Wine is associated with having more than enough. Wine is surplus. Wine is abundance. Wine is looking forward someday when God will bless me with more than I need, that God will bless us with more than, then enough. Wine is associated with heaven. Wine is associated with someday I'm not going to have to choose between repairing the car or repairing the dishwasher. Someday I'm not going to have to pray for God to bring my kid back home on his own accord. Someday, Someday everything will be right again. And someday I'll have a job to do that won't just pay the bills, but will give us a sense of purpose in this world. It's going to be more than enough. Someday I'm not going to have to worry about mere survival. Someday I'm going to be able to thrive. And on that day, wine will drip down from the mountains. See, in an honor and shame-based culture, when they get together as a whole community now, to celebrate the strengthening of that community. And it's worth celebrating. And it's worth having a party. And as they're party, and as they're celebrating, as they're looking forward to the coming of God, as they're looking forward to having more than enough. Listen, it's not just that the wine is running out. It's that Mary comes up to her son, Jesus, and she says, Jesus, hope is running out. Joy is running out. And she doesn't tell him to do anything about it. She just sets this right here and sees how he responds. Because if anybody can fix it, it's Jesus. And she knows that. And the curious thing, listen to the response of Jesus. I mean, have you ever thought about how insensitive this is? Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? We're not teaching your kids. That's how you talk to moms and dads here. I promise this one doesn't get covered. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So like sometimes you dig into this and you go, okay, it's probably just like, you know, um, the translation. I mean, when was this thing written? Like the 80s? I mean, we wouldn't really use that language here today. And it's like, oh, no kidding. That's like 2011. All right. Probably should update that language a little. You know, like that's That's rude. That's insensitive. Probably in the original language that John wrote in this, probably it's like softened. There's probably something lost in translation. There's a deeper meaning. The deeper meaning is that Jesus was being somewhat rude. The deeper meaning is that he's clearly agitated. He's irritated. Woman is what it what it sounds like. Why do you involve me? You're like going, okay. Bigger question though. That's somewhat problematic because I've read other stories about Jesus from the same author, John. And you know, when when John is telling the story and the other gospel writers about Jesus, particularly towards the end of his life, he's getting mocked, spit on, tortured to death. I I mean, throughout all of that psychological, emotional, and spiritual, physical abuse— Jesus never once says something that he's going to regret or try to take back later. Throughout that whole thing, we never see Jesus lashing out at anybody, losing his temper, getting agitated or irritated throughout that whole time. What gives What gives here? Even, even in that horrible moment of his death, he, the last, some of the last words he says is, Father, you know, forgive them. They don't even know this full extent of everything that's happening right now. Don't hold that against them. So why does he get upset here is connected to the second half of that passage I just read, where he says, "My hour has not yet come. Every time Jesus use, every time John uses the word "hour" for Jesus, he means the hour of Jesus' death every single time in his gospel and his story, which might solve the riddle of why Jesus is agitated, but that it's like, okay, so here's the exchange. Mary comes up to her son, Jesus, and she says, Jesus, hope and joy are running out. And Jesus says, very agitated and irritated woman, why do you involve me? I'm not ready to die yet. What? But continue on. Continue on. I think we'll get some answers. I think. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, which I just love because she's like, I don't even know what's going on right now. I don't even know what you're talking about, but I've uh, been your mom for a while and uh, just do whatever this guy says, right? She gets it. She remembers the angel. She knows who he is. She's got this whole thing. Okay, verse 6, nearby stood, and get get your calculators out here, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Right? And he tasted it and he says, Wow, this is incredible. You know, most of the time at most of the parties that we've ever gone to, everybody has the, the good wine first, and like the and the wine that comes in a box comes second, right? But not you guys. You guys, you guys like lead with the good stuff, and then you bring out the amazing stuff. Like, like, who does that before? That's incredible. And it's not just like, Jesus magically, miraculously popped another bottle open. If you're doing the math, that's like 150 gallons of wine. This thing is a party. If you're having a party where you need that much additional beverage, call me. No, I'm just not Seriously, seriously though. Two things. Two things I've never noticed about this passage before, right? And like, I've read this thing a bunch of times. Some of you have read this thing a bunch of times. For some of you, it's brand new. And now you're going to be like, yeah, I got that the whole time. Awesome. But two things I've never noticed before. The first one is that Jesus never directly turns the water into wine. He has other people follow his instructions. He says to the servants, fill up the jars, right up to the brim. And then he says, scoop some out and bring it to the master. And somehow along that way, don't get me wrong, Jesus, he caused the miracle, the water to wine, en route. And it's just, it's fascinating to me that that's how he chose to lead with his inaugural address, getting all the details exactly right. Because I think, I think that some of the most profound miracles come as the result of simple obedience. Well, like sometimes we're praying until something gives. We're praying for God to provide a breakthrough. And eventually, you know, he, he comes through on these things. He does. But we're praying for the supernatural when, when what God is asking and, and where God moves most of the time is in the natural. Maybe the miracle that we're all missing is in the simple obedience of just saying, yes, Jesus. I'll tell it to you like this. This comes from Francis Chan, and he writes a lot and speaks a lot, and he was talking about this. And this is totally his thing, but, but I love what he said, so I'm going to try to share it with you guys. He goes, you know, Jesus gave us a lot of simple, simple instructions, right? He said, go make disciples. And most of the time, what do we do? We, we tell Jesus that I thought a lot about what you said. I even memorized it. Go make disciples. And he goes, I don't get that, because if I told my daughter, hey, go upstairs and, and clean your room, you know, and if she came down and she's like, Dad, I thought a lot about what you said, you said, go clean your room. Dad, I even, I even got my friends together, and we memorized it. Dad, I can do it with my eyes closed. You said, go clean your room. I did it perfectly, didn't Dad, I got my friends. We joined a life group, care group, small group, link group. We, we did this whole thing. Right, and we we can say it in Greek. Go clean your room. I mean, we know what you said. Were that dedicated, he goes, yeah, but you didn't like do it, right? Like, why do we get away with that with Jesus, and we would never try to get away with that with mom or dad? Sometimes the most profound miracles happen as a result of simple obedience, just doing what Jesus says. And I get that my position here, my perspective here at church. I mean, I get to see things that I am just blessed to get to see. Because I get to see things about people being, being out of work, maybe it's a medical thing. I get to see things all the time about how people are struggling to make ends meet. And I get to see other people just trying to live obediently and going, hey, you know what? One of the simple things that Jesus told me is that I should love my neighbor as much as I love myself. And you know, I love myself enough to pay rent or mortgage every single month. And so if I'm going to love you as much as I love me, I guess that means that I'm just going to take care of you until you get back up on your feet. And that's just going to be how it is. Hey, but, but listen, church, when that check shows up to make those ends meet, it's no less miraculous. Some of the most Profound miracles come as a result of simple obedience. Maybe, maybe if we do things we've never done before, we'll see things we've never seen before. It's the first one, is that Jesus, is, he doesn't do it directly. He orders his servants to do it. He orders all of us to do it, and he works through that process. He blesses that process with a miraculous outcome. The other thing is, and I'm going to need a little help, do you remember what kind of jars they were? Ceremonial jars, right? Which is like a weird detail I never caught before. I just, like, it's 150 gallons and I just, I never thought about, like, why would somebody have 150 gallons worth of jars in their living room? I Like, that's weird to me, but it's like, I guess, yeah, ancient culture, that's the thing. Well, it actually kind of was. Because they had all of these jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing, you see, very early on, they established, the Jewish people, uh, the Jew, and where our faith comes out of, established these routines to say, listen, at the center of the universe is very, very holy, a very, very good God who is righteous and who is clean. And you know what? He is so righteous and he's so other and he is so holy that, that we just, we carry this shame and this guilt with us all the time. And that's why you feel the way you do. And there's actually a reason for that. And it's called Sin. Right? And it's not trying to beat up on anybody. It's just giving a name to whatever it is that you're experiencing. If it's guilt, if it's shame, if it's fear, it comes out of sin. And we actually kind of wear that. And, and we can't go into the presence of such a good and holy God, like carrying that with us. But Jesus, he loves us so much, and he actually made a, a way for all of this, for us to come into the presence. But first, they had this process, didn't they, of like sin? listen, if you want to come in, you at least have to wash. At least have to wash to get some of that shame, some of that guilt away from you and, and rinse it off. And they call that ceremonial cleansing or those rituals of purification. It had all these rules, these rules that we tried and seek to to. to to address every possible set of human behavior. And so you know a lot of them because they're like literally carved into stone. Like thou shalt not murder. And it's like, we should write that down. Like that's a good rule for a brand new community. And it's like, don't steal. And it's like, great, another winner. We're on a roll. Eight more and we got 10 commandments going on here. Okay, that's 10. There were hundreds more and probably thousands subcategories underneath those. For example, they actually had a prescription against eating "I will meet." Like you heard that right. "I will meet." And I was thinking about some puns that I could do on that to help it make it more memorable, but I'll spare you from all that. Okay, truly, it's not coming. OK, they, Bat meat was another one, and also uh, lethal harm against somebody who breaks in your house can only be done at night. What, why? I have no idea, truly. But, but they, had, they tried to address like every possible set of human behavior. And so you get this picture of why they needed 150 gallons of purification water on hand, because they were constantly rinsing. They're constantly trying to cleanse. They're constantly trying to rid themselves of the guilt, of the shame, of the fear, of the sin that, like, sticks on them. And imagine the image, won't you? Imagine the image of Jesus' mom coming up to him and said, Hope, joy is running low. And Jesus goes, Grab grab the old system, grab the ceremonial cleansing vessels, fill them up right up to the brim. Grab that device that you used to use just as a small sign, as a reminder about all your shame and your guilt, but, but, but not so much to take it away once and for all, but just to, just to remind you that you still stink. Grab that stuff and fill it to the brim with party juice because this thing is a rager, right? Jesus is saying, listen, the party is going to continue right up to the brim. And then he takes it to the master of the banquet. And the guy's like, this is amazing. Most people wait, right, and bring out the bad stuff, but you what did you bring me over here? And Jesus is going, yes. That's how I wanted to introduce our, my ministry. That's how I wanted to show you what the heart of God is like. Every detail is exactly lined up exactly the way that I want it. So that you know that every time you have a party, Every time you know that you have, you have reason to celebrate anything good and right in this world, it is a tiny glimpse, a tiny window into heaven. And Jesus is going, I came for hope and joy once and for all. Only the thing is, He's agitated by it because the way that he's going to bring hope and joy to the world is the hour of his death. And it rightly stirs him and bothers him in the most holy way. Dr. Edmund Clowney, in writing about this miracle, he said, it's a funny thing. Nobody else at the party knew that the hope was running dry. To them, the party just continued and then got better. But Jesus, he gets it. Jesus sits in the middle of joy all around, and is agitated because he's sipping on his coming sorrow but he's sitting amidst joy drinking his sorrow so that you and i and anyone who would put their hope in him would be able to sit in a place of profound grief and sorrow and no matter what forces no matter what battles they're fighting we could sit in that awful place, and have some hope, have some joy, have something to sip on of his coming kingdom. That In Christ, we could have that confidence to know he's going to do something about it. The party will come once and for all. Everything sad will come untrue. He says it, he says it great in verse 11, the last verse of the passage, he says, what Jesus did here, in Cana of Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples, they believed in him. It was the first of the signs. It was a perfect inaugural address, a product release, an album drop. It was the perfect time because it was a sign. The party the party was a sign of what's to come. The party was a sign that everything will be It will be made right again. It's a sign like you're barreling down the highway on I-96 and you see keep left for Muskegon, keep right for Lansing. Those are not the destination. Those are the wayfinders to get to where you're going. And Jesus is saying, This hope that I gave you, every good experience and holy experience here on earth is a sign, is a down payment, is a hope of everything to come and that splendid joy. And listen, the confidence that we can get from having that hope is nothing short than miraculous. So a few years ago, I'm out in the yard working, digging trenches, of all things, with my dad. And he gets a call. And I know that something terrible happened. I come to find out that my cousin, who is 23 years old, just graduated college, just recently married, took a job in northern Indiana as a youth pastor and he was just involved in an automobile accident and died instantly. I mean, that is tragedy, and that is grief. That is sorrow and hope and joy running out like nothing I could ever imagine. But then the miracle, that sitting in the midst of that grief, his dad shares this. He writes that tomorrow... Is the third anniversary of our son, Paul, going to heaven. I've been very blessed to know him, and I know that God has a plan for this. I trust him completely. I miss him. I yearn for him. I'm also eager to see him again, and I think he'll say, Hey, Dad, it wasn't that bad now, was it? And I'll say, No, son. Compared to eternity, it's not so bad. He told me it hurts every single day. But he hangs on to the hope that someday his Redeemer will stand again on this earth and make everything right someday. And I want you to have, church, that kind of confidence the kind of confidence that sits in the middle of unprecedented pain and hurt and grief, and finds a way to sip joy. I'm ready to stand up? Let's pray together. But before we do, I just I want you to have that hope and that confidence. You can head back to the prayer table and back. And we would love to pray with you. If you If you need to sit, if you need to share some of that grief, a grief shared is a grief divided with somebody else, we would love to be able to do that with you. If you want to know what that confidence is like for the first time or for the first time in a long time, head to the table in the back. We would love to be with you in that moment to point to this eternal joy that eclipses everything that we've ever known. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we have a hope in you. God, we have a joy that could never be eclipsed because you have conquered death. God, nothing could separate us from the love that you have. God, neither death nor life or angels or demons, hype or death. God, none of this, none of this could cut us off from you. And God, some of us are going to head into these weeks ahead and and it's going to be It's going to be a struggle, and it's going to be a battle. But God, in the midst of all of the pain that we encounter, God, in the midst of all of it, may we cast our eyes up to heaven and look to you, Jesus. Look to you, the Son, of which everything good radiates out of. And, And may we take this cup of this party here on earth and to see it as just a glimpse of the eternal party that is still yet to come. Jesus, it's in your name, the Son of God, we pray. Amen. Men, church, we are going to celebrate together because the party starts today. Because no matter what the grief, no matter what the pain, church, he's coming. He's got you. And he's putting everything together, together again, little bit by little bit. Church, we sing out in this hope together.